1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we're speaking with Professor Ariel May Lamb of the University of Connecticut about her book, No Barrier Can Contain It, Cuban Anti-Fascism and the Spanish Civil War. This book was just published last month by the University of North Carolina Press in their series Envisioning Cuba. Ariel, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's great to be here. So, before we get to the book, Ariel, can you trace your academic journey to this project for us? Absolutely. Um, So, I came to study Cuba rather
0: accidentally. It was a very happy accident in my academic trajectory. Uh, for the first few years of college, I was already a history major, but I had studied mostly the U.S. and Europe. Um, I I think I was something of a victim to the um, the biases uh, of the discipline, the history of the discipline. I had been really um, encouraged to study U.S. and European history and not so much other parts of the world. Um, and but I had always studied Spanish. And I really wanted to study abroad in college. And my heart was set on Argentina, um, but I couldn't afford to go to Argentina to study abroad. The only program that was available that was accredited through my university that I could afford to go to was in Cuba. And so I thought, well, that's very interesting. I don't know much about Cuba. You know, I knew a little bit about the revolution, of course, and um, the recent history, but I didn't know much more than that. And I thought, well, you know, I was disappointed that I couldn't go to Argentina, but I really had my heart set on studying abroad so off i flew to havana and i had a absolutely life-changing experience there um being i hadn't traveled much at that point in my life so just being abroad was life-changing in and of itself but also being in cuba um in not just a different culture but a different political economic system, um, where all of the billboards were advertisements for the revolution as opposed to skincare products or Coca-Cola. Um, and the thing that I think really struck me the most as a historian, as a, as a, a history student at that point really, um, was the way in which history was just everywhere, um, on the billboards, on plaques, on the walls, celebrated everywhere, um, mostly of course the history of the revolution but I quickly became interested in the period before the revolution um, and there's a there's a monument in front of the University of Havana to Julio Antonio Meya, who plays a small role in my book, an important role um, and I just became fascinated with that monument and wanted to learn more about who this Meya was and that's really where my undergraduate um, honors thesis came. Came from was the that monument in front of the university and studying its its origin. I wrote about Maya um, extensively in my undergraduate thesis, and then when I decided to go on to graduate school, um, I had done research in Cuba already, which was something of an accomplishment at that early stage. Um, I had re- my interest had really been peaked in in Cuba, um, and so I I decided to apply rather than applying in U.S. history, which a couple years prior would have been what would have made sense for me. I decided to apply in Latin American history and really continue to focus on on Cuba, which I had grown to love so much. Um, that's that's how I ended up studying Cuba. The Spanish Civil War and the anti-fascist um, phase of things came to being um In the period between college and graduate school for me, I worked as a labor union organizer. And I uh, found myself immersed in a culture of of political radicalism. For the first time people around me identifying as anarchists, identifying as communists. And I you know, saw myself as a student of politics, as I saw myself as a student of history. And so I just spent a lot of time listening um, to my colleagues, um, many of them quite a bit older than I and very experienced in, in radical politics and labor organizing. And the Spanish Civil War actually came up a fair amount. Um, And I had read Homage to Catalonia. I was aware a little bit of the history of the Spanish Civil War, but I didn't know too, too much about it. And um, I found it fascinating to listen to these labor organizer colleagues of mine debate the fine points of the Spanish Civil War, uh, you know, decades and decades later, of course. Um, And I thought, huh, this is so interesting. What an interesting topic that people are still passionate. um, uh, Non historians are still passionate about what the outcomes of this conflict. So I literally thought to myself, huh, well, I'm going to graduate school. I wonder if I could study Cuba and the Spanish Civil War at the same time. (laughs) And um, I started looking into the archives. And sure enough, there was this vibrant historical record there of Cubans precisely engaged in the Spanish Civil War. So I hope I haven't gone on too long. But that uh, that is sort of the the serendipity of my my book topic in a nutshell. I I came to it by some rather, um, you know, Uh, unforeseen life events that kind of gently pushed me in in this direction and and ended up with a topic that I have to say I feel very uh, grateful for and fortunate to have come upon because it really held my interest all the way through the dissertation and all the way through the book. I I never got tired of the topic, which I think is quite a privilege. Um, It it really is something that
1: genuinely has has remained a strong interest. Well, how fortunate for your readers that all of these different threads in your life came together in this way, and that uh, your interest in different topics turned out to actually be a viable project, because that doesn't always happen either. Of course. So, this book is mostly set in the mid-1930s, and this is an era in Cuban history that, and Latin American history too, I would say, that sometimes gets overlooked in favor of Cuban independence movements um, a generation or more earlier, and then the Cuban Revolution roughly a generation later. So in this sort of more unfamiliar context, can you set the scene for us? What's going on in Cuba and what's going on in Europe that we need to know about for you? Sure.
0: Um, well, with regard to Cuban history, the big event is what I... Uh, usually call to my Cuban history students the first Cuban revolution, the one that you haven't heard of, which is the revolution of 1933. Um, and this revolution is important for a number of reasons. Um, I could do a whole lecture just on that, but I won't. Um, the main points are that it launches the career of Fulgencio Batista, who is, in fact, one of the revolutionaries at first, uh, before going on to be, of course, the strong man uh figure of the 1930s but also more famously the strongman figure overthrown by the Cuban revolution of Fidel Castro later on um so he his career is lodged in that revolution but also it really forms what I call in the book the generation of the 30s following the the characterization of the, the actors themselves they call themselves um the generation of the 30s or the generation of 30 sometimes um they were uh Really a key, uh, group of political and social actors and activists in Cuban history, um, some of whom go on to fight for the revolution, um, of f- the 50s, um, some of whom who don't, uh, they, they don't all make it. A number of them are killed, um, especially in the period following the revolution of 1933, um, there is a brief government, a brief progressive government of a president named Grau. um, But Fulgencio Batista overthrows that uh, government, essentially, by withdrawing the support of the military. And that sends the island into a period of um, great unrest and great repression. And That is the context, um, especially the largest general strike in Cuban history, which happens in March of 1935, um, brings the island to a standstill. And Batista successfully and very violently represses that general strike. And that moment is really the key beginning point of my narrative, um, because the towering figures of the Cuban historiography have really seen that as an end point. Um, the, the beginning of a, of a defeated lull. And one of my key arguments is to show that there isn't, in fact, this ultimate lull. After 1935, that um, what in fact happens is Cuban anti-fascism. After that, and I know we'll we'll have more time to talk about that, so I won't get too much into the thesis at this point. But just to give a preview of of what's coming, that's why um, the the 1935 point is so important. Is that's really where my argument departs from the literature as it stands, and that brings me to your the second part of your question, which is what's going on in Europe. In a word, fascism right? Um, so the rise of fascism in, um, in Italy, first, of course, in Nazi Germany, um, I, I go into some detail of the book about the controversy over whether or not Franco in Spain was a fascist. But I come down on the side that he was in the sense that to my historical actors, the Cubans that I study, he was very much a fascist. So it's not really my job in the book to put a finer point on uh, the, the debates about who counts as a fascist, he counted as a fascist to the Cubans. And so f- for that, for the purposes of my book, Franco was a fascist. Um, the uh, the rise of these various fascist threats across Europe, um, and especially Franco in 1936 in Spain, because of the long trajectory of connection between Cuba and Spain, Um really strikes this generation of the 30s as an important fight for them to become a part of. And so they um, not only turn their attention to Europe to try to fight fascism, but they also come to interpret what they're doing at home as fighting fascism. Um, they're under uh, the the pen of the censors. And so they don't, except for the anarchists, they don't frequently come out and say that Batista is a fascist. Um But they use a lot of illusion and they say a lot of things about Franco um, that are clearly meant to uh, echo things that they would like to be saying about Batista. Um, So fascism becomes the real global context uh, for the book in that sense, um, both within Cuba and abroad.
1: So can you tell us a little bit more about what anti-fascism means for you in this book and then also for the activists? you study. And I would love to hear more about your contention that we should study anti-fascism, not only in terms of ideology, but also in terms of the human experience of the people involved in this movement.
0: Oh, what a great question. Um, Well, it's a multi-pronged question. Let me address your last point first. I think um, I consider myself a, a historian of activism and of political movements and I think that it is vitally important for those of us who study activism and political movements to do so at the human level and to really look at the intimate scale, because frankly, without especially human courage and human resilience, activism doesn't happen. Um, and also, because of the inherent nature of Activist movements and the propaganda that goes along with them, there's always a danger that one will believe the propaganda, especially of those, of course, whom we agree with, right? Uh, Because we're human too. To believe the propaganda, to believe it as historical fact, um, we have to complicate that, again, by looking at the intimate level, the intimate human level, Um, seeing the foibles, seeing the periods of cowardice, the periods of hypocrisy Um, in a couple of cases uh, that I look at, um, you know, there were um, accusations of impropriety against Cuban anti-fascists, right? These people were human, and it doesn't um, detract from the importance of their movement to really key into that human level. Um, I think it also reveals important truths about political activism to, to see the, the activists at the, at the human level. So I feel very strongly about um telling human stories as part of telling the history of activism. Um, with regard to how I view anti-fascism and how my historical actors view anti-fascism, I would say that for the purposes of the book, I did my very best to immerse my own understanding of anti-fascism in that of my poly- of my historical actors. Um, and And by that, I mean, I have my own understanding of what anti-fascism means today, for example, um, but it was very important to me not to project that onto um, what my historical actors thought of as anti-fascism. Um, the first methodological point I would say to this um, exercise was to really listen to to what the historical actors were saying about their own anti-fascism, which, by the way, they weren't always calling anti-fascism. In fact, that that actual word anti-fascism doesn't come up particularly frequently it's not it's not a ubiquitous word um they would often describe themselves as against fascism but not so much as anti-fascists that that term was not particularly popular so i should that's an aside but i should make that clear um what i found i went in looking for anarchists and communists um and what i found was actually uh Of course, a vibrant, um, a vibrant uh, participation by anarchists and communists, but also a number of other actors whom I hadn't particularly expected Um, the particular role of Cubans of African descent. Uh, is not something that I knew much about before I got started, for example. Um, the strong participation by Cuban Freemasons was not something I anticipated at all. I didn't even think about Freemasons before I got started on the research. And it turned out that there's a whole section on them because they were so such important figures. Um, and then, you know, one of my quote-unquote main characters, Tete Casuso, um, is very much a moderate who goes on to be a strident anti communist. So, you know, there was and her organization really brought together a lot of diverse people, including a lot of very moderate liberal figures um, who were, you know, very much not anarchists or communists by any stretch of the imagination. So diversity of Cuban anti fascism really became central to the story I was trying to tell.
1: Thank you. So maybe in now having set out some context and talked about this really important term in the book, I just wanted to give you a space to articulate what you think is sort of maybe the most important or the two most important takeaways that you'd like readers to get from this book.
0: Sure. So I, I touched upon this a little bit a minute ago, but I'll, I'll reiterate that my what I see as my most important contribution to the Cuban historiography is really reconceptualizing the period from about 1935 to 1940, uh, which is a short period but a, a really key one, I would argue, in Cuban histi- history and historiography. Uh, and what I what I've done is to take a period that has been described as a defeated lull or a, an sort of apolitical period where everybody is just disillusioned and quiet um, to one where actually activism continues in quite a robust form. Um, but only we only see it if we look at it transnationally. So we really have to look at the way in which Cubans were concerned with international fascism and the, and then we have to interpret the way that they, um, saw that as relevant to their domestic struggles um, against uh, strongman governance by Fulgencio Batista, um, but also against neo-colonial control by the United States as well. Um, they they mobilized the concept of anti-fascism against both of those um, goals, essentially, the, the anti-strongman goal and the anti-neo-colonial goal. The reason, I think, uh, or one of the reasons that this is important to understand about this brief period is that two very remarkable things happen in Cuba in 1940. One is that Fulgencio Batista submits himself to a democratic election, which he wins, free and fair by all historical accounts. And two is the promulgation of a remarkably progressive constitution. These two events have generally been described in the literature as surprising. And indeed, if we think of 1935 to 1940 as a defeated lull, where activists are not engaged, then it would be quite surprising in the context of greater Latin American history For someone who is essentially a dictator, I mean, he's he's hiding behind puppet presidents, but he's essentially a dictator at this time, at least a strong man, is submitting himself to democratic election, free and fair, and allowing, in fact, encouraging and and leading the call for this progressive new constitution. Um, That would be surprising if there weren't any reason for it. And one of the things that I argue in the book is that anti-fascism is an important reason that these two things happen in 1940. Now, another reason I should say that's important for for historians listening um, is is the influence of Lazaro Cardenas in Mexico and FDR in the United States. So there is undeniably an international influence on Batista at this time as well, to move somewhat more progressive. Um, But I don't think that that alone can explain his domestic moves um, in 1940. I think we also need to acknowledge the robust activism of the Cuban anti-fascists in order to understand that. And again, this is a picture that emerges only when we look at the transnational scale and by the way, also, to bring it back to the intimate scale, it also appears when we look at the intimate scale. It doesn't so much show up when we look at the nation state scale. And that's why I think it's been missed in the past. And I've actually had the opportunity to talk to some of the, the towering scholars of the field, like Robert Whitney, for, for one. He's an important influence on my work, um, about this, this disconnect in the historiography where so many scholars have seen this period as a defeated lull. And he said, yes, actually, uh, the the way that I was able to make that argument was basically by ignoring anti-fascism. And by the way, he knew it was there. Uh, We had a great conversation recently about how um, excited he is to see it finally getting the light of day because he knew it was there, but he didn't have the energy in his own project or the time in his own project to make sense of it. And I think that's why it's, it's important that I've had the, this opportunity to finally make sense of this brief period that is so formidable in the Cuban history. The final point that I'll say about, um, about what I'm trying to do here is the way in which it connects to the history of anti-fascism globally, um, and particularly the international participation in the Spanish Civil War. Um, there is a a pretty immense literature on foreign participation in the Spanish civil war. Uh, and there's a growing literature on global anti-fascism. Um, and I see my work as fitting into both of those literatures. Um, the literature on foreign participation in the Spanish civil war has focused a lot on, uh, U S Americans and, um, and Europeans of various nationalities. There are some works um, on, on others. And in fact, there are a couple of works on Cubans in um, the Spanish Civil War, but they mostly focus on, um, you know, combat soldiers. Uh, and and the, the picture that I'm painting is uh, quite a bit more broad than that. And then with regard to, to global anti-fascism, it's actually a really exciting time to be a part of that um, growing literature, because there are, there's are there been some new works that have come out. Um, there's an edited volume that I'm a part of that will be coming out sometime this year or next um, on t- really trying to globalize the study of anti-fascism beyond Europe, uh, beyond the United States, and really see the way it was operating
1: across borders and oceans. And that's tremendously exciting to me to be a part of that. So we've got a bunch of great reasons why we should, you know, now get into the weeds of the book. Um, let's start with the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, which seems to be kind of like an uh, an opening bookmark for the period you're studying. So what made this invasion significant to different groups of Cubans and how did they respond to it? Well, the,
0: the two groups that really... Um, as far as I've been able to discover, concerned themselves with Ethiopia were Cuban communists, that is members of the official communist party, Big C, and um, Cubans of African descent, um, especially those who were already politically engaged um, at the time. So the communists um, were interested in fighting fascism um, and they they, to their credit, they definitely tried to promote um the, you know, defense of Ethiopia on the island of Cuba. um they put out manifestos, they um they made sure that their followers understood this was a worthwhile cause. but they weren't able to really connect um, the the struggle of this distant land, um, to particularly Cuban concerns beyond a, a relatively superficial sort of anti-colonial solidarity. Um, so I discussed the, the communist response because it was there and, and, and there was some, um, you know, some energy around it, but it didn't really get off the ground very much. Um in contrast the black cuban response um which was very much tied into an african diasporic response that crossed borders and oceans um did a lot more work to convince other cubans why ethiopia should matter to them um for one example um they unearthed this um figure who goes by different names in different um different uh, sources um who was supposedly a um, a Cuban, although other other sources don't actually think he was Cuban um who was a uh, um ambassador uh for for cuba in ethiopia according to them and they published this um article about the um the uh the the uh, not theoretical but the the um conversation that uh these that this cuban individual um supposedly had with um with uh, the emperor of um, Ethiopia, uh, back in the day, right? This is not contemporary to the Italian invasion, uh, the second Italian invasion. This is contemporary to um, the earlier it- Italian incursion, and I just I had to look up his name because I forgot his name. I'm not good with names, but it was William H. Ellis, A.K.A. Guillermo Enrique Elicio. Um, He was uh, probably not actually Cuban. um, But for the purposes of the the propaganda that black Cubans were um, releasing on this, this event of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, they made him into a Cuban and um, talked about his conversations with the emperor of Ethiopia and how um, the emperor of Ethiopia said, based on his descriptions of Cuba, it must surely have been the second nation made by God after Ethiopia, um, because it was so beautiful. Um, So, you know, this kind of, it's kind of fake news, (laughs) um, unfortunately, but there was an attempt to... Um, show a, a pattern of history between Cuba and Ethiopia, um, that was based on, um, uh, diasporic conceptions of Ethiopia as a, um, a homeland for Afro-descended people worldwide. Um, so this is something that's been talked about in diasporic studies, uh, you know, studies of the African diaspora a fair amount. And I go into the history of it in the book. But Ethiopia, despite being in Eastern Africa, not where most of the Africans of the Americas had their ancestry, um, was seen for for a number of reasons, including biblical um, interpretation. Um, and also uh, the sense that Ethiopia was the ancestor of the, the great Egyptian civilization. Um, for these reasons, Ethiopia was held up as a, a, a homeland, a sacred diasporic homeland. And so black Cubans um, both tried to show a um, what we might today call a global south connection um, between Ethiopia and Cuba, as uh, colonized nations uh, or nations that where outside forces were attempting or succeeding to colonize them, um, and uh, and also this diasporic sense that uh, Ethiopia was a homeland that all. African descended peoples around the world had a duty to protect. Um, so that it was sort of a two pronged approach, one in one sense, specific to Cuba, and another sense, uh, specific to the African diaspora. Um, very interesting comment um, by a, a white Cuban anti fascist, um, Penichet. And um, that essentially makes um, what we might think of in contemporary terms as a Black Lives Matter comment. Um, He says, essentially, once Spain has already um, broken out a little bit later, that it took Spanish children being bombed to wake Cubans up. When it was African children, when it was Ethiopian children, they didn't wake up. They uh, They didn't, you know, fight back. Um, and that comment, along with some of the frustrations of, uh, of the Black Cuban activists themselves, really show that despite the passion, despite the intricacies of the argument that um, Black Cubans made about the defense of Ethiopia, it really didn't get picked up by the broader Cuban public. And there was this frustration that uh, it took essentially white children, right? European children being bombed before the majority of Cubans
1: started to pay attention. So let's turn now to this moment when um, the Cuban public does wake up in this sort of um, broader way. So you have two chapters in the book that focus on the activism of these figures, Pablo de la Torriente Brau and Tete Casuso. Um, So can you tell us their stories? I don't know if you want to do it kind of more intertwined or separately. And Tell us about what their biographies um, illuminate with regard to the connections that Cubans felt to the Spanish Republican cause and and what activities they decided to do to show their solidarity. Absolutely. So
0: I want to start with the disclaimer that Torriente and Casuso are not representative of Cuban anti-fascism as a whole, um, and that in fact, no two figures could be because it's so dramatically diverse. Um, so I, I don't make the claim that these two are somehow speaking for all Cuban anti-fascists. Um, just because I focus on them, I don't mean to to imply that. So I, I want to make that as a disclaimer. Um, they're are a couple of reasons that they figure so prominently um, in my narrative. One is that they they were husband and wife. They were dual activists side by side from the days of the 33 revolution um, through anti-fascism. And despite that, they have received wildly different treatment in Cuban historiography, so the, the historiography produced in Cuba itself, um, in that Torriente is widely celebrated and has his own cultural center, and has his collected works have been published, and Casuso has been almost entirely erased. Um, no, she shows up in his collected works, when he references her, she hasn't been blacked out. But she doesn't receive any of the same attention um, in terms of celebratory um, books or, or cultural center or anything like that. And indeed, in the little bit that has been written on the island about her organization, the the Cuban campaign to aid Spanish children, which she founded and ran uh, for a number of months, she is almost entirely absent. Even though she founded the organization, she barely shows up, um, and so that discrepancy really caught my attention. And I wanted to learn more about it. So I really focused in on them. Another reason that I focused on them. Um, well, a two pronged reason, I will say one is that they left behind very valuable, rich source material, which always makes for, you know, um, inclusion, right. Um, and second of all, that they were just very interesting people, um, very thought, thoughtfully wrote about their own experiences. And, you um, and you know had important stories to tell that were if not representative of all cuban anti-fascism at least very suggestive of some forms of cuban anti-fascism um so those were the reasons that i included them um they were definitely elites, but not at sort of the top of the spectrum of eliteness um so uh Oriente's father was a government official uh, in Puerto Rico and then in Cuba. and they, they sort of went back and forth between Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, Casuso's father was of the landed elite but of the very insecure landed elite. So they, for example, lost, he lost his whole fortune um, when she was still in school. So they were both university educated, um, and they were definitely part of the student slash intellectual uh, milieu in Havana um, and abroad. They they spent considerable time in exile in New York City. And in the book, what essentially happens, and this is a spoiler alert, I suppose, <laughs> um, is that uh, Toriente um, stuck in New York after the strike of 1935, Torriente gets very bored and decides uh, shortly after, very shortly after the eruption of the Spanish Civil War to travel to Spain as a reporter, goes to Spain just as quickly as he can. He's, uh, by all accounts, the first Cuban to arrive there. There are some Cubans who were already in Spain when the fighting broke out, so he's not the first Cuban on the ground, but he's the first to travel there, as far as we know. Um, he goes by himself. He doesn't go with the later later Cubans will go in groups, but he goes by himself and works as a reporter for several months, but then takes up arms to try to help defend Madrid in December of 1936 and is shot and killed. Um, the correspondence between husband and wife reveals that the original plan was for Tate to uh, join him in Spain. And once he got there, he wrote to her and said, this is no place for you. You should go to your parents in Cuba and stay there until I return, which is a very interesting moment for me because they had fought side by side, uh, in the activism of the island in very dangerous circumstances. And, um, the gendered nature of his, um, admonition and, and her, um, obedience to that, because she does, in fact, follow his directive, um, is is pretty striking, given their their trajectory up to that point. Um, she finds out that he was killed in a newspaper, which makes me tear up a little bit every time I read that part of my book, um, because it's just so stark and um, such a, a terrible um, affront on top of the tragedy that she, she found out that way. And she's, of course, completely devastated. She had basically, according to her own writing, been in love with him since she was seven years old. So this is the love of her life. And um, she's, she's absolutely devastated. And she decides that what she needs to do is participate in some activism. Um, the first thing that she wants to do is publish his works, but she can't get a hold of them right away. So in the meantime, she decides she'll found an organization to aid Spanish children during the war. And that's what she does. And um, it's just, if we think for a minute specifically on the intimate level of human experience, it is stunning that her response to the death of the love of her life is, well, better found an organization Right, that's a remarkable choice. Um, it's one that I admire greatly. I think it's it's phenomenal um, that she was able to turn her personal tragedy into a, a, a an action in that way. Um, and I write in the book a little bit about the the way in which she clearly tied the fact that she and Pablo had had no children. Um, to her wanting to help children specifically, um, she, she makes a very clear connection in, in some poetry that she writes for the bulletin of the organization that she is turning from a child who never arrived to help the children of the world, um, which is very touching to me. Um, So she found this organization and the organization is really interesting. Um, I don't know if you have a specific follow-up question on the organization, but um, I'll just say briefly that it's very um, interesting in the way in which it brings together extremely diverse Cubans from combat volunteers to self-proclaimed Christians to Freemasons to um, you know, just moderates of all types, it claims to be nonpartisan over and over and over again. It claims that it's not supporting a particular side in the war, and yet in all of its actions, it's very clearly supporting the Republicans or the the anti-Franco side of of the Spanish conflict. So it is an anti-fascist activist organization parading as a chair as a nonpartisan charity, <laughs> which I find very, very interesting. And the way in which childhood and children are mobilized
1: to pull that off is is fascinating to me. So zooming out a little bit from these fascinating biographies, Um, Can we talk about the Cuban volunteers in Spain in more general terms to bring out some of this diversity um, that you've mentioned before? So what roles did Cubans actually play in the conflict or in in other things going on in Spain? And how did they connect the Spanish Civil War to their political causes back in Cuba? Um, And something that I'd um, I'd like to hear more about from you is what you make of the fact that Not all of these volunteers kind of come from the political left.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the volunteers are politically diverse in the sense that some of them are absolutely card-carrying communists. Some of them are absolutely anarchists, although those are harder for us to find. The records are not as good. Um, Some of them are Trotskyists. Some of them are socialists. Um, they adhere in some cases to the various political parties in Spain that were part of the conflict, uh, the political parties and unions that were part of the conflict. Um, But there were a whole lot of people who were quote, unquote, just good anti fascists, um, and really didn't adhere to the political left. Now, I should say at this point, for those listeners who are not cubanists or don't study the cuban history of this period that there is significant tension between those cuban political actors whom we would generally refer to as leftists right that is communists socialists anarchists etc and cuban nationalists who are anti-imperialist anti-strongman governance And very often, to some extent, influenced by Marxism or by anarchism or both, um, but who are first and foremost Cuban nationalists and don't subscribe to one of these particular isms of the left. So many, many of those folks identify as anti-fascists without ever um, joining a leftist group or party. Um, Some join the Communist Party for practical reasons, because it helps them get to Spain uh, without being what we would consider maybe true believers. Um, And of course, that's difficult to tease out because when they're talking to communists who were the ones keeping a lot of the records, of course, they say they're faithful communists. (laughs) But if we look at um, their history of political activism, very often what we find is participation in the Cuban nationalist groups, rather than a Communist Party membership going back. Um, So maybe some of them changed their minds and actually became communists. But I I think that it's very clear um, that Cuban nationalism, full stop, played an important part in Cuban anti fascism. Um, And one of the ways that I I show that in um, in the book is to trace some of the ways in which Cuban martyrs of the nationalist cause were used in the organizing of the anti-fascists. So one example is we have the Club Cubano Julio Antonio Mea, uh, which has a location in New York City um, that has been uh, recognized for some time by scholars um various people working on trying to figure out more about that organization Um, i discovered also that there was a club julio antonio mea in barcelona during the war um they they set up shop there as well um so using mea who was a um he was a communist, he was as most people know he he helped found the Cuban Communist Party in 1925. Um, But he was always outspoken. He didn't um, toe the party line, particularly faithfully. Um, One of his key mentors was an anarchist. And he was very much also a Cuban nationalist. So he is a complex political figure. And I argue that naming this club, this political club, um, after Maya is really deeply appropriate, excuse me, in the sense that it was a club that brought together a lot of political diversity. Um, And Maya was also one of the original Cuban anti-fascists all the way back in the early 20s. He was already concerned with Italian fascism and was leading anti-fascist actions on the island. In, in one example, protesting the landing of an Italian ship, for example. Um, so he he's a very um, appropriate person for the, the Club Cubano in New York and in Barcelona to have been named after. Another example of this kind of use of Cuban nationalist martyrs is the Centuria Antonio Guiteras, which is the Cuban section of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, um, or Abraham Lincoln Battalion, excuse me, um, which is famously the U.S. volunteers to the Spanish Civil War to fight on the Republican side. Um, they have what the the Americans, the U.S. Americans, call the Cuban section. But the Cubans call it the Centuria Antonio Guterres. And again, for those uh, listeners who are not Cubanists, Antonio Guterres was uh, a member of the Grau government. Uh, after the revolution of 1933 and the founder of joven cuba which was a militant um activist cuban nationalist group of the period and many of the members of the centuria antonio guiteras were joven cuba alums um so they literally carry a banner uh with guiteras's name on it into combat in spain and this is really um metaphoric for me that this carrying of Cuban nationalist martyrs onto Spanish soil into Spanish battle um, really shows the way in which Cubans saw um, anti-fascism as a continuation of their nationalist struggle, their domestic struggle. Um, you asked about different roles that uh, Cubans played in um in spain and also about their diversity i mentioned the political diversity i should say also that they were racially diverse and fairly diverse in terms of age although of course we would as we would imagine Older Cubans were not going to fight in Spain. Uh, you know, not not too many people older than their fifties. Um, they were mostly younger younger people, and they were overwhelmingly male, so not particularly diverse in terms of gender. Although there were a notable number of women, uh, none of whom, as far as we know, served in combat roles, but who served in medical uh, roles. A number of med- a number of nurses. And also in other roles, there was a Cuban who was one of the coordinators for the international campaign to aid Spanish children. And there was another Cuban woman, a Black Cuban woman named Rosa Pastora Leclerc, who uh, went with the Cuban campaign to aid Spanish children, Tete Casuso's organization, to the Catalan town of Sitges, where she served as principal for the Casa Escuela Pueblo de Cuba, which was a boarding school essentially for, um, war displaced children. Um, very clearly on the Republican side, although again, the organization claimed to be nonpartisan, um, they were in Republican territory in Sitges and, um, they flew the flag of the Republic alongside the flag of Cuba. So, um, that was another Cuban woman who, who served in Spain, although again, in a non-combat role. Um, there were Cubans who were uh, doctors. Um, there were Cubans who uh, were transport um, people. There were Cubans who served in um, support roles, like uh, cooking and cleaning, so forth. Um there were a number of cubans who served as officers and political commissars um i have a list somewhere i don't know it off the top of my head but i want to say there were something like 22 cuban officers um don't quote me on that number but that's the number that is floating around in my head something like that um so cubans uh made it up the ranks um and a couple were pretty highly situated within the the spanish military Uh, of course cubans among the international volunteers were particularly well situated first and foremost because they spoke spanish which many of the international volunteers did not do or did very poorly uh famously poorly um So they were able to integrate into the regular Spanish military, not just the international brigades, although they served in both. And furthermore, a lot of Cubans who had spent time in exile in the United States were actually bilingual. So that made them even more valuable because not only could they speak Spanish, of course, perfectly fluently uh, with their Spanish comrades, but they could translate for the many US, British, Canadian, Irish volunteers who spoke English. Um, so they were noted by, Sp- by excuse me, English language volunteers and by Spanish language volunteers for this bicultural, bilingual status that they had uh, that made them particularly valuable in certain, certain elements. There's a funny little anecdote in the... Um, the uh book where uh, an Irish, excuse me italian american uh, volunteer named john tisa uh was friends with a lot of the cubans and he he was pretty prolific in his writing so i was able to draw on some sources that he wrote about his memories of the cubans and he tells this little anecdote about how uh i think it was an Amer- u.s american um who called and ordered some enormous quantity of habon. um thinking that he was um ordering uh ham but in fact ordering soap um and the cuban the the spaniard who received this order called back confused and he and john tisa writes they put a cuban on the phone and and he straightened everything out thank goodness and we ate ham um so that it's sort of a funny little anecdote but i think it it illustrates the um the ability that Cubans had to really save US Americans behinds um, on the front lines. And of course, you know, getting soap instead of ham is problematic, but not fatal. If we think about the fact that these kinds of wrong translations and misunderstandings were also happening in combat conditions, it gets a lot less funny. Right. So um, Cubans uh, had a vital role to play in combat where people literally couldn't understand one another. Um, People on the same side of the of the fight couldn't understand one another.
1: So moving back to Cuba, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, the extent to which we can talk about an anti-fascist success on the island, because we know that the result of the Spanish Civil War is uh, the Republicans losing. Um, I can maybe you can connect this to your your point about these political changes happening in 1940 and what role anti-fascist activism played in setting the political course on the island.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I have to say that the the boogeyman in the room well there are a couple boogeymen in the room one of course is the cuban revolution but leaving that aside for the moment um one of the boogeymen in the room is the 1940s in cuban politics because the 1940s are a period um where some of that disillusion and um and defeatedness that supposedly happened in the 30s that i was able to show was not as complete as people have, um, have assumed. The assumption is that that really descends full force in the forties. And I, I think that I have work to do going forward to determine to what extent anti-fascism, you know, is able to continue to make an impact in the 1940s. I mean, I will say that, um, the democratic election of Batista is surpassed in its surprising quality uh, by the diselection of Batista, the democratic diselection of Batista four years later when he allows his rival to take the presidency. Um, and that the power of the Constitution of 1940 arguably stands to the present um, in the sense that it certainly plays a role in the early Cuban revolution of the 50s and certainly plays a role In. in the outcome of that revolution once Fidel Castro is firmly in power and it becomes clear to many Cubans, to all Cubans, that that constitution, though spoken of quite highly, is not going to be strictly followed. Um, The anger around that um, is, is something that stands going forward. So in the sense of the election and the constitution, I think there are clear lines of influence forward. Um, the other obvious thing that I have to mention here is World War II. Um, Cuba enters World War II on the side of the Allies in 1941, along with the United States. Um, and there is actually a uh, a big scare um, around Cuba during the war, um, fear of German submarines, um, lurking off the shores of cuba there is a german spy who is uh, apprehended in cuba and despite the fact that he was by all accounts a completely inept spy um there's sort of a, a mass hysteria around him for a time um so there is definitely a way in which anti-fascism goes mainstream in cuba during the early 1940s um And that at that point, it has a lot more to do with the United States um, and the war than uh, the internal activism. But what I argue is that contrary to narratives in the past that have seen that anti-fascism and projected it back onto the period that I study, um, I argue that The two are they're not unrelated, certainly, but that you can't say that anti-fascism in Cuba in 1935, 36, 37, 38 uh, really had much to do with any agenda set by the United States or or FDR or anything like that, um, that it. The, the anti-fascism that we see as Cuba enters the war um, that is much more US centric, is a different, is a functionally different beast, although of course related um to what I study.
1: So thank you so much for this really interesting walk through your book. Um, and there's certainly much more to be discovered. So I invite listeners to uh seek out the book and and to read it. Um but before we conclude, I would love it if you could you know, maybe connect your work a little bit to the present, both in Cuba and maybe globally as well. What do you think that today's um, anti-fascist uh, practitioners might find significant about the history that you uncover here? Sure. Well, just to speak briefly to Cuba, I'll
0: give a, a short anecdote, um, and that is that one of one of the last. Um, Spanish Civil War veterans to pass away in Cuba was an old anarchist named Universo Lippis. And I make the point in the book that he was pretty much completely ignored through much of his life. Um, And then when he got very elderly, he was celebrated uh, widely by the Cuban revolutionary government. And I th- I found this curious, um, and I think that it what I what I tentatively concluded in the book is that perhaps as a very outspoken anarchist, um, Universo was inconvenient for the Cuban administration um, when he was a younger man um, and vibrant and potentially influential. And so he was minimized. Um, this is just a hunch um, that he was minimized in those earlier years. But then when he was very elderly and presumably less um, vibrant or less less able to project um, his influence uh, due to v- very old age, um, that suddenly it was pertinent for him to be celebrated for his anti-fascist legacy. Um, I think that the, I know from the Cuban historiography that Cubans um, in power have seen the anti-fascist movement as, quote, a glorious page of internationalism, um, something that they can point to as an earlier period of Cuba being globally engaged, which of course it has been um, to great effect over the decades of the Cuban revolutionary government. So in that sense, um, anti-fascism is is a useful period historically for the Cuban revolution. But I I guess if I could have the ear of, a, of an interested Cuban official, I would recommend a greater engagement with the diversity of cuban anti-fascism because i think there has been i know again there has been a tendency in the literature um, to uh in the literature and in public celebration of of anti-fascist veterans um whether combat veterans or just veterans of the anti-fascist movement to celebrate those who um seem to be in line with the goals of the Cuban revolutionary government um, and convenient for their needs and to really minimize uh, or even erase those who are problematic for some reason. And so I I guess, again, if I had the ear of a a sympathetic Cuban official uh, or or historian of this uh, subject, I would um, plead for a greater engagement with the whole diversity of Cuban anti-fascism, because I think that it's um, a real testament to um, Cuban activism over the years to look at how many diverse people were engaged in this effort and, um, and how many, um, you know, sacrificed tremendously to, to try to fight fascism. Um, And that brings me to anti fascism. um, Today, I think that it is a real shame that my book topic is so relevant. (laughs) I wish it weren't so relevant. Um, I wish anti fascism didn't have to have a place in our current events, but I think it very much does. Um, I will say that um, Antifa or the the anti-fascist movement, as it is understood as a set of loosely organized um, groups around the world, is tends to be very much leftist um, and, in fact, anti-liberal. Um, and I don't. Uh, pretend to be in a position to argue with those folks. I th- I think that I, I stand in tremendous admiration for people who have been fighting back against fascism and its attendant evils like racism and sexism and homophobia um, for decades, way before this current moment uh, when people are paying attention. These folks have been on the front lines of fighting against neo-Nazis and um uh, and other fascist groups in Europe, in the United States, across Latin America, and in other parts of the world. Um, uh, Far be it for me to to criticize uh, their agenda, I I think they have a really important role to play. Um, But it is key to understanding my book, to know that when you see that word anti-fascism on my cover, it doesn't mean just leftists. It doesn't mean just anarchists or just communists. It really means a diversity, a broad group of people, uh, including moderates, including liberals, including Freemasons, Christians, um, people who certainly would not fall under the Antifa um, umbrella today, necessarily. Um, and that's that's a key distinction that I want people to understand as they read my book. Another thing that I want to say about our historical under, understanding of anti-fascism from the vantage point of today, and I mentioned this earlier, but I want to reiterate it here, is that the field of anti-fascism studies is really opening up over the last few years, decade, maybe, um, to look at places outside of Europe. In particular, um, of course, anti fascist studies have generally focused on Europe because that's where fascism arose, and, and the, the studies mostly began in the interwar period and so on and so forth. But increasingly looking at anti fascism across time and space is really key to our understanding. And if you look at the historiography of fascism, just the sheer number of titles, as opposed to the historiography of anti-fascism, you can see that we have a long way to go on the ladder. We really need to understand anti-fascism much better than we do. Um, Much ink has been spilled on fascism, as as it should. Um, But we've got a ways to go in understanding anti-fascism across time and space.
1: Well, your book is clearly an important step in that direction. Um, So thank you so much for that. Today, we've been speaking with Ariel May Lamb about her book, No Barrier Can Contain It, Cuban Anti-Fascism and the Spanish Civil War. Ariel, my appreciation again for your time. Thanks so much, Rachel. It's been great.